Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley... Have you heard the buzz? Tomorrow is the start of Massachusetts Pollinator Week, a time when advocates seek to raise awareness about the vital role that bees and other pollinators play in our lives. Yet we're all feeling the sting as pollinators, and bees in particular, continue to rapidly decline. In Massachusetts alone, colonies of bees dropped by 47% last winter, according to the Bee Informed Partnership. But earlier this year, Massachusetts took steps to protect pollinators, becoming the first state in the country to regulate a specific harmful pesticide. Meanwhile, local beekeepers have become a political force in the state, teaming up with scientists, policymakers, and everyday people to save the bees. They say if their effort fails, we just might be the ones who need saving. Later in the show, the Roxbury International Film Festival is back in Boston this month after going fully virtual last fall. This marks the festival's 23rd year as New England's biggest film fest dedicated to showcasing films by, for, and about people of color. This year's focus, highlighting films that feature black people in a celebratory light. But first, joining me remotely, Representative Carolyn Dykema, state representative of the 8th Middlesex District in Massachusetts. She's been working on pollinator protection legislation for years. Welcome, Representative Dykema. Hi, Callie. Great to be here. Mary Duane, president of the Massachusetts Beekeepers Association, who has been beekeeping for over 20 years. Hi, Mary. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you. (laughs) And Noah Wilson-Rich, CEO and co-founder of The Best Bees Company, a Boston-based company that installs and maintains honeybee hives in urban centers across the country. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Okay. Well, we're going to start with you, Mary, because I think everybody would want to know, what got you excited about bees? And for 20 years, you've been caring for them. What keeps you excited about bees? Well, I got into beekeeping by accident. I'm, I'm a biologist, a former high school biology teacher, and I asked a colleague one day, what do you do for the summer? And he said he was a state beekeeping inspector. And I thought that sounded absolutely fascinating. So I asked him about it, and he said, well, there's a course. So I took the course on beekeeping offered by the Worcester County Beekeepers. Every night I'd come home from a class and I'd say, oh, my God, those little creatures are fascinating. And for the last 20 years, I've been learning more and more every single day. And I am as fascinated today as I was when I took the first course way back in 1999. They were amazing little creatures. Well, apparently you're not alone in your fascination. Here's a clip from The Pollinators, a 2020 documentary about migratory beekeepers in the United States. Bees are so fascinating. When you first go into a beehive, you're like worried about getting stung. And then as soon as you start watching them and seeing them on the combs, communicating with each other, it's just so fascinating, so complex. And it mostly works. 
until we get in the way of it. I love that clip because it reminded me not only of what you said, but it also conveys the kind of excitement that you just shared with us. So what we know is that bees have a very important function. I think everybody knows that they have an important function, but I don't know if everybody knows, Mary, how important. I just, in preparing for this piece, found out that three out of every four leading food crops for human consumption and more than a third of agricultural land worldwide depend in part on pollinators. That's according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. I think we'd have a very bland diet if we did not have a little honeybee. If you look at a supermarket or you go to a Thanksgiving meal, you could have turkey, you could have corn, you could have mashed potatoes without the work, the pollinating work of honeybees. However, you're not going to have the apples, you're not going to have the apple pie, you're not going to have the cranberry or the cranberry sauce, you're not going to have the blueberry or the blueberry sauce. All the wonderful, beautiful, colorful, and healthy foods that we associate with our diet come from pollinated fruits and trees and vegetables. Amazing. Noah Wilson-Rich, $20 billion in U.S. crop production, according to the American Beekeeping Federation, is connected to bees and their job as pollinators? Yeah, it's amazing to think about even when you scale it globally. I mean, people from all over the world have a cultural connection to bees, and that culture feeds into our food system and our jobs and the global economy. That goes up to over $100 billion every year that's contributed to the global economy because of these little insects. It's even relating to our cattle. So for people like my dad who say, I don't eat fruits and vegetables, son. And I say, okay, well, what about your your meat, your dairy? You know, cattle, the entire industry rely on hay and alfalfa that relies on bee pollination. So we have so much that really we often take for granted because we're just not that connected with our food system like this. Well, I'm not going to assume that everybody understands how bees or other insects and animals pollinate. So here's a fun clip from DreamWorks Bee Movie, where Barry the Bee goes out with the pollen jocks to pollinate the flowers of Central Park. You ever see pollination up close? No, sir. I pick up some pollen over here, sprinkle it over here. Maybe a dash over there, pinch on that one. See that? It's a little bit of magic, ain't it? Wow, that's amazing. Why do we do that? That's pollen power, kid. More pollen, more flowers, more nectar, more honey for us. Cool. Noah Wilson-Rich, I assume you've seen the B-movie. Callie, can we just talk about how in the B-movie, those are males doing the work. And in the real world, we don't have a king bee. We have a queen bee. It is female power, the ultimate female power. So that's where the B-movie gets it wrong. (laughs) It is women, females doing the work. So anytime you see a bee on a flower, you say, hey, girl, give give some female props out there. That's why we need a scientist in this conversation, I understand. I'm telling you. All right. Well, uh, fun aside, one of the issues uh, has been uh, something that I had not heard of before called colony collapse, which means a lot of bees fell ill and we lost a bunch. And that impacted what Mary said and what you said about what happens with the fruits and vegetables that need to be pollinated for us to consume. First, tell me, Noah, why it happened and where are we in terms of coming back from the colony collapse? Starting at the beginning, it was around 2005 when I started graduate school, getting my PhD in biology at Tufts, studying honeybee health. And then 2006, 
the headlines started to come saying bees were vanishing. Not just bees were dying, but there were no dead bodies. And so for anybody who's a fan of CSI or a lot of these other cop shows, you know, when there's no dead body, there's a big mystery. People get interested. So by 2007, this was in the New York Times, people saying the vanishing bees, what's happening? It also coincided with this farm to table movement where people wanted to know where food came from. And so it was a bit of a perfect storm with interest. And that really helped us figure out what was going on. So there were three main killers of bees. Uh, One of them is agricultural chemicals. We'll talk about that a bit today. So pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. The second of three is diseases, of which bees get many. Uh, In 1987, there was a new mite that transferred a lot of diseases to bees called varroa, and that's really where a lot of things changed for bee health. The third thing is habitat loss. So there aren't enough flowers out there to feed bees and give them a good diet. And so those three things all have been really negatively impacting bee health. With this mystery of colony collapse disorder, it does seem to coincide with the release of a new type of pesticide called neonicotinoids. And uh, there are a lot of problems with those specifically, but it could have contributed to what I call an Alzheimer's-like hypothesis, meaning bees and their brains get confused and don't necessarily remember where they lived. And that could be an explanation for why we were seeing these losses. And, um, you know, colony collapse disorder, uh, it ended around 2011, only in terms of the bees didn't vanish anymore. We're now finding the dead bodies. And as you mentioned, Callie, you know, with 40 47% loss of beehives every year, it's a really, really big problem. So people are getting involved in any way they can from working with our legislatures like Representative Dykema's tireless work to getting beehives that contribute research data. Mary, before we turn to State Rep Dykema, I really want to talk to you about what happened to you and your bees during this colony collapse, because you've been working with your bees for 20 years, so you saw all of this. Yes, exactly. I I started keeping bees in uh, 1999, and everything was going pretty well. We heard about a little creature called a mite that was carrying some viruses and diseases, but we were able to work with it a bit. And then all of a sudden, um, the big-time beekeepers had CCD, colony collapse disease, and all the things that Noah just mentioned are, are true. But I don't think there's ever been a definitive reason why that particular year caused that particular problem. I personally did not see a big die-off of my highs at that point. But I have a good friend down in uh, Pennsylvania who's, who lost a who's big-time beekeeper who lost over 60 to 70% of his hives. So it was a real phenomenon, and we don't know definitively what caused it. Um, but one thing that beekeepers are really good at, they're resilient uh, creatures ourselves, and we can take one hive that survives, and we can split it into two hives. Mm. So we've been able to kind of grin and bear it, the losses that we suffer every year by making what we call splits, taking one hive and making it into two. So that's been the way that most of us, myself included, have been able to try to maintain our colony numbers. When were you aware that the pesticide or pesticides, because it's more than one, were having an impact on your beehives? Honestly, I can't say that pesticides affected my bees in particular. I've had them te- my hives checked and I've not had any pesticides, but I've, I heard all about it starting in 2008. And then 2010, and it just kept on rolling more and more and more. And all the studies came out. We, the beekeepers, the Worcester County beekeepers, got involved with um, what was causing things and pesticides. And we just went went to town with the politicians and tried to get some action. 
All right. Well, the politicians, that would be you, State Rep. Carolyn Dykema. When did you become aware that pesticides were having an impact on the health and also the numbers of bees as major pollinators? Well, Kelly, as a legislator, one of the things I listen to very carefully is the public, and it is quite amazing how much the public cares about bees. So when a lot of this information started becoming more prominent in the media about colony collapse and bee declines, uh, my phone started ringing. And one of the calls that I got or a number of the calls that I got were from local beekeepers who were starting to hear the science and the concerns about the connection between pesticides and colony collapse disorder and bee health more generally. So I did watch the science for a little bit. I've got two parents who are biologists, so i sort of familiar with the, the scientific world and publications. And uh, the science was, was becoming then, and it is continuing to become more clear that there is a connection between these particular types of pesticides, which are systemic um, and actually stay inside the plant and don't wash off and impacts on bees, which absorb these pesticides every time they feed on the various flowers. So as a result of, of this, these public concerns, I started getting more involved and ended up filing a bill that would limit pretty significantly access to this particular type of pesticide by the public and those who weren't trained to use them properly. Who was mainly using the pesticides and what was the initial response to your move to try to get some legislative uh, regulation around these pesticides? Well, this was back in 2015 when I first filed my bill. And at that time, there was a whole range of products available to the average homeowner on the shelves of Home Depot or Lowe's or any garden center, basically, that contained these neonicotinoid pesticides, which are also used pretty regularly by professional landscapers uh, and lawn treatment companies. So they're very pervasive. And in fact, they're one of the largest, if not the largest, most consumed uh, insecticide in the country right now. So they were very, very broadly used at that time. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with State Representative Carolyn Dykema, who represents the 8th Middlesex District in Massachusetts, Mary Duane, president of the Massachusetts Beekeepers Association, and Noah Wilson-Rich, CEO and co-founder of the Best Bees Company. We're talking all things bees and pollinators to mark the start of Massachusetts Pollinator Week. Noah Wilson-Rich, the pesticide as an impact in general on your hives that you install and maintain uh, on commercial and residential properties in urban centers. What did you see? Part of what we do at Best Bees is we, you know, like Representative Dykema and Mary Duane, we listen to the community and we hear from so many people that they want to get involved. They want to help somehow, but they're not really sure what to do. So my approach to science has always been what we call citizen science. So working with homeowners, businesses for rooftops that are empty to get beehives that are connected to research so that we can do a community-based approach at collecting data. So just uh, like we've shared a little bit, I worked with the Harvard School of Public Health to collect samples of pollen from beehives around Massachusetts. And we really focused in the Boston Suffolk County area for this study. It came out in 2016. And that is all about how there are so many levels of pesticides that are flying, as we say, under the radar with the beehives that we just didn't understand. We would call these sub lethal levels. So just kind of like if we're feeling sluggish with our human health from day to day, we're seeing some 
factors with bees that are just underproducing honey, they're just failing to thrive, and we're seeing some of these sublethal levels of pesticides that could very well explain why our surviving bees are still very sluggish. We do see surprising levels of pesticides all over Massachusetts, and it's really from these citizen science beehives that let us know that. Can you explain why, as uh, State Rep. Carolyn Dykema stated, that this specific kind of pesticide is, as she said, systemic? You can't wash it off. And, and what that means long term. Absolutely. So pesticides exist because there's a problem with pests. And so the industry creates solutions that, you know, we're trying to get better all the time, but we're still working at it. So a systemic pesticide often is a seed coat. Often we think about a corn and soy, let's say. So when you're planting a corn kernel, these are coated in bright colors. They might look like M&Ms because there's this neonicotinoid pesticide on the outside. When that seed um, becomes a plant, when it germinates, it takes up the pesticides that are on the outside of the seed and it's inside the plant. It's flowing through the plant so that the plant itself becomes toxic or distasteful to those critters who are trying to munch on it. It's different from the days of DD when we might just spray pesticides out in the open. The advancement here with a systemic pesticide is that it's much more controlled. The problem is that often these seed coats can wash off. Only a very small amount, maybe 5%, are taken up by the plants, and the rest can contaminate and spread into the soils and our waters and get all over the place and have very unintended consequences. So, State Rep. Dykema, you had to do two things then to bring attention to this pesticide. First of all, I would imagine you had to explain, you know, what what it means to have an impact on your main pollinator to us, the rest of us, and then push forward with something that has been very effective in controlling pests. I mean, that's what the pesticide does, but there needs to be some way to sort of protect these pollinators. I mean, what was was your persuasive argument in the end? That's a great question, Kelly. Very, very well said. Uh, you know, the, the whole legislative process is really one of negotiation. And as you can imagine, when you're talking about restricting a, an insecticide that's very, very broadly used by a lot of people and is very effective at controlling pests, you're going to uh, have to have a conversation, right, and try to find your way through that in a way that um, makes sense. And one of the things worth noting that was first brought to my attention is that neonicotinoids are one of the few things that could control the Asian longhorn beetle, which many people know really decimated trees out in the Worcester area. So we didn't want to eliminate the ability to use these pesticides entirely. What we really wanted to do was uh, limit or minimize the amount of uh, ornamental use and really use that wasn't necessary for uh, key management of things like, like the Asian longhorn beetle. So we ended up working very closely with a whole number of stakeholders, including Mass B and Mary and her, her constituency, obviously, but also worked very closely with industry. And I ended up having a very close relationship with Mass Nursery and Landscape Association and the Mass Flower Growers, who obviously understand the connection between a healthy bee population and their livelihood. Uh, all of the plants that they sell rely on healthy bees to pollinate them. So they became some great partners in saying, you know, what's a reasonable restriction and how, we how can we make these available in a limited way for the uses where they're really needed by people who are trained to use them sparingly and only when absolutely necessary. And that's really where where we ended up. And I filed legislation for a long, long time, which ended up being adopted 
uh, through regulation by the Department of Agricultural Resources here in Massachusetts. So what does it mean, Rep. Dykema, that we're the first in the country to have tackled this? Um, And are other states uh, looking to us as a model now? We were one of the first states to start having this discussion. Since my bill was filed, there are a whole lot of other states that are filing legislation and many have passed legislation. We are the first to adopt these types of regulations through the regulatory process versus through legislation. And the reason why I believe that's significant is it really speaks to a process for us as a state to look at pesticides more broadly and have a forum within state government that can truly evaluate the science and make some reasonable accommodations to make sure that uh, our environment is protected when we're using these pesticides. So in that way, it's it's a really, it's a groundbreaking movement. Mm. Mary, what is the message that you want just regular folks to take away at the end of Pollinators Week? I mean, the week is there so that you can raise awareness about all things bees and bees' importance in our food production and, and how we consume food. So what do you want people to understand? Because it's not on everybody's radar. <laughs> No, no, but food is on everybody's radar and and we need food security um, and we need our pollinators out there. They're very, honeybees in particular are very docile creatures. They're just trying to make a living going out there to the plants and picking up nectar and we're hoping that it doesn't have any pesticides in it and they come back and they pollinate in the process. As your video showed before, they shuffle pollen from one plant to the other and then they make this delicious crop, surplus crop of honey. So I think Pollinator Week, I want people to realize just how important this little creature is and how wonderful a relationship it can have with mankind if we do our part and treat it respectfully and give it a good environment. If you could uh, wave a wand and everything would be the way you would exactly like it, how many bees would we have in Massachusetts? Uh, How many would you have in your own particular hive? What would that look like? Well, I, I did some numbers here. We have about uh, four to 5,000 beekeepers in the state of Massachusetts, which most times you, w- you wouldn't realize that because you're driving by somebody's home and you don't even realize that there's a beehive or two in the yard. And those 5,000 beekeepers have approximately 40,000 beehives in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, but I do think as a beekeeper, you have to be very responsible with your beekeeping because bees can be threatening and intimidating to your neighbors. So I think you need to be very, very responsible as a beekeeper. Learn how best management practices. The Massachusetts Beekeepers Association, we have a best management practice on our website for anyone to look at. And it shows how to responsibly keep bees. So how many bees? I would love to have hundreds of hives, <laughs> but I'm realistic. I live in a in an urban area and I, I keep it to my five hives on my property and uh, it works out well. And Noah Wilson-Rich, however, you believe that urban is the area where bees should be mostly kept, that there's an advantage, you, you say. Yeah, you know, we follow the data. And, and just as we're talking about with Mary Duane and the Massachusetts Beekeepers Association, you know, the more beehives that we have out there, the better we can understand what's really going on. And anybody who eats food needs bees. And, you know, it's great to have Representative Dykema here with Middlesex County. We're with Suffolk County. Our headquarters are in Roxbury. From our beehives at people's homes, on business rooftops, we have found that bees in the city tend to be doing better 
And we've scaled this to other cities in the country, and we're finding the same trend. We're also seeing trends like coastlines and peninsulas, including Winthrop, Cape Cod, Cape Ann, having proved bee health. It all comes down to individual people. And bees are one of these issues where no matter your ability, your background, anybody can make a difference. When we're seeing these tough headlines and you don't know what to do, if you get a beehive, whether you do it yourself, you learn how to become a beekeeper and you join your local club, if you support this legislation that it really improves community health for everybody, or if you're able to hire a beekeeping service like Best Bees to do it for you and then collect data from those beehives, anybody can make a difference. So now that we have the regulatory piece in place here in Massachusetts and other states seem to be moving in some similar direction, what's the best scenario then for how many bees we'll be able to protect here in Massachusetts, Noah? Well, it's another citizen science opportunity. So there was a great nonprofit called the Great Sunflower Project that put this to the test. And this is where anybody can just bring a folding chair and a pad and a pen and watch a sunflower for 10 minutes a day and you just count how many bees you see. Hmm. And this is where we start to get some data to better understand when is there when, when do we have too many beehives? Right now I'll tell you and I'll challenge all the listeners Callie Go sit by a flower for 10 minutes and count how many pollinators you see. Look for butterflies, look for moths, look for hummingbirds and bees. And I'll tell you, it's going to be quite disappointing. So I don't think we're anywhere near having too many bees yet. And it's going to take all of us to really make a difference. So Mary, tell me how many she'd like to have. What in your mind is the ideal number of bees? Well, I'll tell you my vision here. It's going to be for every rooftop in the city to be green. We call this the gray to green movement. We know it's inevitable. So every rooftop has got to have pollinator habitat, which has got to include beehives. It's got to include food producing gardens that are pollinator habitat. So the number of beehives, I'm going to say two times every building in Massachusetts. How's that for my answer? And connected to research, because that's when we're really going to understand what's happening and we're all going to play a role. Is there a state that is a real model for having done the best protection thus far and for having managed to increase the number of bee pollinators after the significant colony collapse, which affected everybody everywhere? I know Maryland has done quite a bit of work on passing legislation to limit the pesticide portion of it. But I think Massachusetts with our MDAR, which is Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources, Um, has done a terrific job in uh, supporting the beekeepers in our states and CCD. And I think they've been terrific. So I'm going to give Massachusetts thumbs up. Okay. I like that answer. (laughs) Kelly, if I could just... uh, Oh, please. Yes, go ahead. Add one thing. I just want to note, you know, there are a lot of states that are taking action, which is really exciting. They're recognizing that there needs to be something done uh, on the pesticide front. I think it's important to also talk about the forage front and and um, access to food supply for bees, because that is one of the other more significant challenges that I hear about all the time. Um, and, you know, in honor of Pollinator Week, and you had asked about um, what message to the public, I think the message is that uh, everyone can do their part to support bees in their backyard by planting native plants mm. that have the flowers and have the, the forage that our bees and our pollinators really need to thrive. And when you look at what's happening with climate change and its impact on plants and our weather, all of these things stress bees and we can play a role in in changing that. 
you know, we know that a lot of the traditional plants that are good for bees and pollinators are not around anymore. So we really need to continue in force to make sure that we do things like that. And the state has actually stepped into that space as well with our new uh, solar program uh, at the state level. There's actually an adder, meaning that the developer putting in a solar installation gets an additional credit, if you will, if they put a pollinator friendly forage underneath their solar installation mm-hmm. so that they can get both benefits for uh, the environment through their project. Um, Somerville recently announced, um, perhaps you know this, that they were going to have a concentrated program for native plants. I guess that's coming through the city. So that's what you mean, that kind of action. Exactly. And the state just started a partnership. So the Department of Conservation and Recreation, as well as the Department of Agricultural Resources and many of our local businesses started a new program where you can go into your local nursery and get a little native pollinator planting kit. So you can go out in your backyard. I know a lot of uh, the public these days who, uh, you know, working remotely, they're out in their backyards. So this is a great partnership between our state, our local businesses, as well as our communities to really support pollinators. In order to be bee friendly, you do not need to be a beekeeper. You mm. just need to be bee friendly as going to a local plant store and just sit out there in the plant store and look around and see what the bees land on. And that's your plant. And of course, check to see if the plant has already been pre-sprayed because you don't want a plant that has been pre-sprayed. Ah, now pre-sprayed with a, potentially a pesticide. Or the pesticides. Oftentimes the growers right. will pre-spray them and you just specifically ask the, the, the uh, plant store, has this been pre-sprayed? I don't want it. Tell them why you don't want it and then get another plant. But you can see what the bees like by just sitting there and observing. That's Mary Duane of Mass B. Let me just say, I will kill anything that looks like a plant, so there's no no hope for a bee near me. But I will buy the honey. Is that being bee friendly? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Support your local beekeeper. I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm all about the honey, uh, and I love local honey. So that's a that's a good thing. One other one of our citizen science projects is we test samples of honey to find out what native plants the bees are going to in every individual community. And so that's called honey DNA, where for honey lovers like yourself, we can then sample it. And then we use a process called genomics, kind of like ancestry DNA or 23andMe, but for honey. And that will help you understand what native plants to discuss with your local vendor for, for plants. And our, our nonprofit, it's called the Urban Beekeeping Laboratory. Uh, we are going to be launching a new website later this summer to share all of those results from around the world. So stay tuned. It's a great Roxbury base. Right. I would really like to know that. Yeah, we'll you know, follow up. Um, are there many different varieties of honey that you know now, even without your list, that are connected to native plants? in Massachusetts? Yes. Just to share with a lot of the trees we don't give enough credit to as being pollinator plants. Think about linden trees. It's a great one in the area. You know, if you have an opportunity to put something new in, might as well do a pollinator tree. Hmm. Mary, go ahead. You wanted to add to that. As you drive along the Mass Pike, as you go to the center of the state, you see beautiful black locust trees. And that makes the most delicious, light type of honey you can have. And you can become a honey snob. I consider myself a honey snob. I'll use uh, black locust honey on certain types of uh, cooking items. And then in the the fall, I'm going to get my uh, goldenrod honey. And that's a darker, more rich, robust flavor. And I'll use that on pork and other types of things. So yes, you can become a honey snob and get the flavor that you like. 
and you can collect honey from around the world or around the country. I mean, it's 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 amazing the unique nuances. And from season to season, my honey will be different because different plants will be in bloom at different times of the year and different years, and I'll get nuanced flavors. Well, I have, I've, I've purchased a lot of different honey over the time just because I'm one of those people that likes to sample different things. I'm kind of a foodie, but I didn't realize the native plant connection. And to me, that is very interesting and something that I as a consumer would be pretty attracted to in terms of really going out and looking for honey that had that connection. I don't think I'm alone in that. So that's good. Uh, Noah Wilson, Rich, I also want to talk about your bees that went up in space. So now bees are taking over space. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. You know, as I always say, honeybees are a research tool for us, the way you call it a study system. It's a way for us to understand the natural world better. And so part of my research affiliation with MIT and the MIT Media Lab has been with some remarkable students working with Professor Neri Oxman. And from time to time, they have the opportunity to put experiments up into space. And so I I had a student group with Rachel Smith who said, hey, we have an opportunity to put bees on a rocket ship. It was the New Shepard with Blue Origins. This is actually the shuttle that Jeff Bezos announced he's going into space with. So I don't know if inadvertently that they used our bees as a test for Jeff Bezos or what was there, but we learned some fascinating things. These mm. students put together a little spaceship for them to go up on. The bees returned to Earth all alive, and then we reared colonies on the rooftop of MIT and that really helped us to breed a better bee, to understand how bees and their social network might change or protect each other in times of great stress. It certainly relates to the future of farming. If we're going to be living on the moon or Mars or the space station, do we want to hand pollinate our crops? Do we want to eat goo or do we want to have real food that could even resemble our native plants here? So there's so much we learned and that research publication is going to come out any day now. And I'm just so proud of those students at MIT. All right. Well, Mary, you're going to get the last word because I was somewhat surprised to know that a sunny day in the summer could be more deadly to a pollinator than winter. You would think it would be the opposite. So what can we who are learning all of this going into Massachusetts Pollinator Week do about that? Once again, I think we all need to be bee friendly. It's in our own interest to be bee friendly. You do not have to be a beekeeper. If you would like to be a beekeeper, look around. There's county beekeeping associations, so please look into them. You, but don't have to keep bees. You can plant flowers, food supply for them, and just be supportive in general of all the pollinators. Don't be so quick just to spray pesticides and kill things. Only use it when necessary. All right. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm sure a lot of my listeners did not know as much about this as, as I didn't know. So I thank you all for joining me. Thank you, Callie. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Callie. That was great. Representative Carolyn Dykema is a state representative of the 8th Middlesex District in Massachusetts. She's been working on pollinator protection legislation for years. Mary Duane is president of the Massachusetts Beekeepers Association, who has been beekeeping for over 20 years. And Noah Wilson-Rich is the CEO and co-founder of The Best Bees Company, a Boston-based company that installs and maintains honeybee hives in urban centers across the country. Coming up, the Roxbury International Film Festival is back. The Film Fest, committed to featuring works by people of color, kicked off on Thursday with an expansive roster of over 80 films. The Roxbury International Film Festival continues through Saturday, June 26th. Our conversation with two featured directors and the woman behind it all. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 